So let me get started. This economy is something for everyone. Uh, the bulls have their uh, side, the bears have theirs, and the people sitting on the sidelines have their their views too. I think for the bills, for the bulls, it's been you know we have they're expecting a lot of rate cuts. They're expecting a softer no landing. They think that uh, the stimulus that's been in the system isn't going to cause any problems, and that uh, we'll manage through uh, the issues that are that lie ahead, um, including. What the bears are focused on, the wars, trade disruption, oil prices um, starting to rise. They're also focused on valuations of the Magnificent Seven, the Taiwan election, China's response, the U.S. election, uh, oil prices rising, debt burdens and the like. Uh, but through it all, the markets are nearing uh, record highs in the U.S. And uh, uh, in some other areas, they're uh, not doing quite as well, but Japan's seeing a nice run too. So I want to touch on some of the negatives going on in the economy, but also bring you back to why we see opportunity and where we see the opportunity in this environment. So let's start with China. Um, this is a very different Chinese economy and a very different Chinese country than it was even 20 years ago or uh, before President Xi became, uh, took his leadership role. And it was not going to be able to grow at a 10% rate uh, indefinitely anyway, but the drop right now that we're seeing is significant. And there are questions whether we've moved in a, in a mode that's going to make it much more difficult for China to uh, maintain the level of uh, standing that they're so desirous of, of being uh, the global leader, if not one of the top two global leaders, and it is looking a lot like the economy, depending on decisions that go on, could be a lot more like Japan and not overtake the U.S. Um, so I think this is a big issue. I think you also add to it um, the geopolitical concerns that are out there and the debt issues. I think China is going to have to step up more stimulus. But this has thrown me off over the last year. The China reopening was very different. I think the China of the future is going to be very different than the one of the past 20 years. And we have to really think uh, differently about how we're investing in China or investing or what China's implications are for the global economy. I think to go to the, the other big area, which is Europe and their experience, a pretty significant political and economic transition. We've seen uh, an increased shift to the right uh, in Europe. You're starting to see uh, some concerns about inflation hooking up again. Uh, in the headline inflation, there's concerns about oil prices starting to creep up. They did uh, seem to plateau or bottom around uh, $73 in uh, WTI, and now they're starting to move up. I think the some of the issues that we're seeing here are um, going, going to weigh on Europe considerably. You saw the protests in Germany. Um, obviously, Schultz is in a tough spot um, as they start to eliminate some of the subsidies that are out there. The population turns more and more against the leadership, giving uh, the opposition a better shot of getting elected going forward. I think there are real issues here. Part of it is the deglobalization that's going on there. I think you go to the third area of conflict and you see what's going on in the Middle East. And the hope was that uh, the attacks on October 7th were going to be limited. Um, but now it's starting to expand, and uh, this is the uh, Iranian network that's starting to uh, add to it. And um, Mark, I think the note we got from uh, Hamlet is timely. It 
And maybe we should relook at this area as a, a deep dive because I think yep. the implications here are starting to pick up and grow considerably. And it's not just the politics, it's the economics. This is uh, disrupting trade and starting to uh, stoke inflation pressures. And to put it in more terms, it's not just the length of time, but it's the disruptions that's going on. It's what it means for companies to reorient their supply chains, what it means to global trade that's already going under a lot of change. And where is it showing? It's showing in the Drury Freight Index. This is uh, as of uh, the 11th, but look at the spike in that. And this is really following the, not the attacks as much, that was the bottoming in, in October, but really it took off when the Houthis started to uh, act up and it started to go beyond the contained area that we thought it would be uh, or that we all hoped it would be uh, in the Middle East. Yeah, add to that that governments are dealing with debt servicing costs that are crowding out other spending needs and you know the tractor protest, the farmer protest in Germany being an example of this. Um, you're also starting to see other issues that are showing signs of weakness. I think in Europe, you're starting to see some of the bankruptcies um, start to rise again. I think companies in Germany had the ability to not declare bankruptcy when they insolvency when they needed to, um, uh, based on uh, legal out, um, and now that's being uh, having to come back in. So you're going to, if you're a company that's insolvent, you're going to have to declare bankruptcy. I think you're going to see those numbers rise. You have a deindustrialization that's going on around the world, or a reindustrialization in some areas, and a deindustrialization in China and Germany as manufacturing shifts, that is all these things are weighing on the system. So you can see where the pressures are starting to build. But problems create opportunities. And I wanna just stop here for a minute and just say, it is easy to get sucked into all the negative, uh, all the negative sentiment. And doing this every week, I get sucked in too. And one of the things that's come out lately is that the media is so negative that it's actually distorting the realities of the economy in people's minds. And it's changing how everyone counters and reacts to the news. And I think the economy is probably better than the news, much better than the news is, but it's not as good as the hope. So we're seeing opportunities and we see them in a number of areas and we're gonna to touch on them. But the first thing that you have to keep in mind is uh, in World War II, in the US, the railroads going into World War II were heading towards bankruptcy. And the war started and all of a sudden we changed our industrial base and the railroads took off. The point is in different times, you can find opportunities to make money. In the seventies, we had high inflation, you had an oil embargo and our firm went heavy into energy. And in 79 and 80, we're hundred percent in energy in our client portfolios and we're the top managers in the, in the country. We don't get that aggressively anymore, but there are opportunities in really bad times to make money and you have to be focused on those areas. So for today, it's really about the productivity improvements, uh, countering trends. It's about geopolitics and climate change, um, creating demand for uh, critical materials. It's about the redefinition of national security and how we're thinking about it beyond just missiles and, and border protection, but energy security, cybersecurity, food security are all becoming much bigger uh, elements of it. You're also, as a leader, dealing with demographic challenges that are driving big changes in policy and healthcare. 
But you're also, on the other hand, seeing innovation driving these advances that are incredible, what's going on in the healthcare area, that will lower costs and improve health outcomes. The pandemic was just the start of it. We're going to see a lot more moving uh, as we go forward. So let's take a look at some of these. Why inflation, why productivity is important? It's because it's the antidote to inflation. And I think it's safe to say the battle on inflation is not yet done. Um, and you're starting to hear that from the central bank. Uh, Governors Waller will speak today saying that we're not sure, he's not sure we're done yet. The ECB has been out, a lot of their governors have been out saying a lot more work to do. Don't count on the rates quite as quickly. So productivity is the key to offsetting inflation and dealing with wage and labor issues. So we, we're very focused on this spend continuing. But it's also most important, most institutional portfolios are not allocated to key areas for this economy. They're focused on the old economy. And this is a very different economy. The materials required for a, a low carbon economy are very important and very scarce and not well represented in institutional portfolios. And we'll touch on that a little bit more in a minute. So when you look at how the world invests today, and if you go to the gold bars, the S&P right now is 3.9% in energy. And when you think about the problems we're facing in the world today, that is nowhere near enough. If you think about the need and all the changes going on and the demand for batteries and other resources to drive the energy transition, the climate transition, the um, productivity improvements to drive national security, it's only 0.6% of the S&P waiting. It doesn't take much to move the needle. And then if you go to the aerospace and defense, you're looking at half a trillion dollars for the top five defense companies in the US, but it's only a 1.6% weighting in the S&P. The blue bars are our allocations and one of our strategies, our focus ETF strategy. I would argue that most portfolios are reflecting the past and not the present and the future. And if you're underweighted in the areas of energy, materials and, and aerospace and defense, I think you're gonna be very disappointed going forward because these are the areas that are essential and you cannot have the tech improvements without energy and uh, materials driving things forward. So lastly, we're always thinking about, you can find good opportunities in bad environments or in difficult environments. Tech is still in the early innings of a lot of the advances that are going on. So semiconductors are still powerful play and not just for the positive growth that's going on, but for the negative things that exist in the world. You're seeing more and more companies moving fully to the cloud. So we're still in the early innings there and productivity has to improve um, with the advent of AI. It's gonna really drive some big changes that allow companies to do more with less. I think the beneficiaries of the reindustrialization that's going on climate and national security are all out there for you. But as I said, they're very much underweighted. Industrial weightings of the S&P is only about 15%. But if you think defense is inside that, that means you're not really getting the exposures that you need um, if you're not more fully weighted. Industrial commodities, the rare earth, steel, and copper, we talked about the, the geopolitical war that's going on around that. You're seeing Norway is now starting to increase their subsea mining capabilities. You're going to see the, the ocean be a big part of uh, where the future mining is going on, which has bad implications for climate, but big implications for geopolitics. I think energy, healthcare, these are all gonna continue to be big players. I think people are way ahead of their, uh, themselves on where the central banks are going. 
I think you're starting to see inflation pick up and some of the move up in energy prices um, may slow down some of the thoughts of how aggressive the central banks are going to be. I think there's also a funny uh, dance between the Fed and the ECB as to who cuts first and what the implications of it are. If the ECB cuts up, could strengthen the dollar even more because our yields would still be at an even bigger differential, which would attract more capital to the U.S., putting greater strains on the rest of the world at a time they don't need it. So I think the ECB may need to wait for the Fed to go, but I don't think the Fed's in that big a hurry to cut rates either. So you add that all together, and then you have the elections that are coming, and this will be a volatile year. But I would say through all the problems we have going back in time, you think about how the world's progressing, and we still keep moving up. There are setbacks along the way. But I can tell you, last year, two families in 361 who were thinking about investing in 22, when the market ended on a high and things were so nervous about how 23 was going to start, they got very nervous when the market ended down in 22, and they got very nervous and weren't committing to the markets. And lo and behold, we had a 20% plus year in the, in the markets. So being timing the markets is very difficult. That's not a way to go. I think you really want to be invested in the beneficiaries of what's going on, not out of the markets and trying to time the markets. Lastly, I'll leave you one thing. Uh, next Tuesday at uh, 2 o'clock, Dr. Edyard Denny is going to be doing a conference call for us. Um, he predicted that the markets, he projected that the markets would come in at uh, 4,600 last year. They came in at 4,736. But this year, he's projecting 5,400 on the S&P and uh, 6,100 for the following year. So with all the wall of worry, he sees some things uh, that are really quite interesting. And uh, I'd encourage you all to join that if you're concerned about what's going on. Mark, I'll stop there and we can open up for discussion. So that's at two o'clock next Tuesday? Yes. And I'll uh, forward the invitation around as best I can. Okay, maybe we'll even we'll help you do that. Yeah, yeah. Ed, Ed Yard any uh, was also been part of some of our events. Thanks to you, Stephen. Um, actually, let me just ask: How is Nancy Lazar uh, looking at the world today? Uh, less negative than she was last year. Um, she's doing her uh, mea culpa, uh, but still thinks there are problems that are out there and that. Uh, that there is, uh, she's not in the soft landing camp. She's more leaning towards the, uh, that we are still gonna have some problems coming. It's just delayed. Well, sorry, Wanda, see your hand up. How are you? Uh, good, Stephen, thank you. Two clarifying questions. Uh, can you elaborate more on the de-industrialization uh, de of Germany? What's behind that? Uh, China is clear for me, but I'd like to take your take on Germany. And for those like me or myself who um, really need to be educated in economy, what is the Drewers Index? Uh, what does it? Uh... Oh, the Drury Index? It just yeah. is free cost. Um, it, it tracks. It's another uh, index that tracks shipping costs. And it's oh, real time for, yeah, for the shippers. So uh, they okay. were saying by the changes, um, I'll start with the second question first. The Drury index is for shipping and by the changes of having to go the long way, that's increasing the cost uh, of that. Plus there are also additional security costs that are rising the cost. So it went from 
basically $1,500 a month ago to $3,000 for a Supermax for the shipping costs. So it's it's big for a container. So it's a big increase in cost, doubling of cost in a month. So to keep you on this note, does opening of the Northern Passage in uh, the Arctic Ocean uh, impacts the Drui index at all? It, it will over time. It won't immediately because you, when you're changing shipping routes, you actually have to change other things that go with it because it's all, that's what we found with the pandemic. The system was very efficient. Globalization was working quite well. And we had a very efficient system that worked until you had snafus. Um, but you, you gear your whole business around those, those shipping times and now when you change it, you have to reorient things. So it does create some uh, different challenges that, that will need to be taken care of. I think Germany, um, remember, Germany was a manufacturing engine for the world um, with China. They were the two leading ex manufacturing exporters around. The US is a fairly healthy one too, but they were the big ones, but their economy was very dependent on it. And now what you're seeing is, I think the war created a problem that one, you don't have peace in Europe and, and they don't have the, the supply of energy as dependable as they had it before with the low cost. So you have that issue. I think the other problem is the subsidies that are going on. I think the government's not, I think government finances are straining the system. And as you start to lose support for subsidies, it puts greater strain on the system, making it hard, harder for companies to deal with the higher cost and forcing them to look for lower cost options. And that's what is we're seeing the beneficiaries of in the US foreign direct investment coming because we can bring in with subsidies at a much lower cost. So I think industrial policy is part of it. I think energy policy is part of it. I think there's other issues in Germany that are, are deeper. I don't think they're down and out, but they are in one of those periods where they've had a great run and now there's they have to go through an adjustment process. They will come, they'll the economy will come back. They have a lot of wealth there, but inequality is rearing its ugly head. And when you give, take away subsidies from people and they're dealing with higher costs on top of cost of living being higher, forget about inflation. The cost of everything that they're buying is higher. That creates problems and strains. So the government's in a real bind there. They don't have the financial wherewithal to meet the, the public's needs. And their companies are in a bad spot from an energy supply situation. And with trade being disrupted, they really have to find lower cost opportunities. So I think they're in a tough spot and they've been in one for a while. I think they can get out of it, but it will take some time and some better policies. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm, I'm sitting next to Michael. I know, he's gonna weigh in and tell me I'm wrong. No, 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 you're completely right. Yeah, this is, uh, well, <laughs> as, as you know, we need talented people, but we need also talented people in the uh, on the political side. Yeah, so, and we have uh, really missed uh, this in the last two years. Yeah, so uh, the leaders we have at the moment, they're making uh, uh, very strange uh, decisions. Yeah, and one coming back to your point. Yeah, uh, we have seen uh, in the last year, and this is a, 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 is a debate in the German uh, press, uh, uh, that we have uh, dropped down uh, the consumption of CO2 uh, heavy uh, energy production. The, the reason is why we st we stopped everything to do it out for ourselves. But we need uh, more energy from outside, which is much more uh, expensive. And that's the reason why uh, was the reason why the German uh, economy dropped down 0.3%. Uh, this is homemade by our politicians. 
Yeah, and you could believe me, they would. Uh, they uh, there at the moment. Yeah, the the, the government uh, has um, less than twenty percent of the votes of the German uh, uh, population. Yeah, so th they dropped down from fifty five percent to less than twenty percent at the moment. Approval, yeah. approval yeah. rating. Yeah, yeah. And I was reading that an opposition party is uh, someone splintering off from the opposition party, a woman, and she will have almost as much. Voting power as the as the uh, Schultz does now in terms of support. Exactly. But you know what? Do you know what the party's called? What's the the three? Um, uh, B, B, BSW. It's it's her initials. The, talk about. We may as well call it the Trump Party. Why, why don't we just call it the Trump Party? Yeah, I do think I think Europe can come out of it. Germany in particular can come out of it. But they need to really have a mindset shift that there is a problem first, that they have to acknowledge that there's a problem and then address the problem. I think they're they're ignoring the real problems, underlying problems in, in government there. I think that's a big part of it. The US industrial policy is crippling for a lot of the uh, companies because they have a choice of doing it in Germany or doing it in the US at much lower cost with and closer to their market. I think that's, uh, I think they gotta fix their policies pretty quick. Fair enough. Um, so Bakri, please. So thanks a lot for the rich and well-diversified content. Um, actually, based on the presentation, um, my view is that, and based on what we are already going through right now and what we are reading, um, we are on the brink of a third world war. And at the same time, uh, when we are already also referring to the sector, uh, with respect to energy, for example, or investment in batteries, um, I'm actually I'm curious to know which geographical area might be also looked at at this stage. Well, I'm going to speak. Or we're 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 primarily invest in U.S. securities, so I always come from that perspective. Um, I try and bring a global perspective. But if I was a, if I was a global investor. Um, I would still be looking at the U.S. for a lot of the energy um, because of of the policies and and because of our production and and the, the security that we have around it. Um, we are, I think, the largest exporter of natural liquid natural gas now. We're, if not the largest producer of, of energy in the world, uh, we're certainly up there. And I think that um, I think around around where you want to be you also have to factor in the geopolitics in the world we're in as you highlighted so i think i think it becomes really about each country's national security how they think about energy so i do think that's a, an element but for us it's easier to invest in uh, the places we know with rule of law and with less noise around it where we can isolate the us a little bit better um so that's how we would approach it but i do think there are i think there are really cool innovation opportunities all over the world. And that's the thing you got to focus on is it's really about finding the right security or the right company, as opposed to finding the right geography right now. I think geography matters, don't get me wrong. I, I wouldn't be, um, I think China's in the bottoming process and I think they still have some work to do, but I think they'll be coming out of it. I think you can see some of the things starting to come back, but I, I think you have to really look at it at a company by company basis um, and go from there. Um, but I, I would have, I think Europe has an energy problem that's not going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. So I think that's the one region I would be very negative on for energy. Um, 
And I think what the Saudis are doing, we, we're going to look back in 10 years and think they were really on top of it and ahead of it. They might not have done it all right, but they were their vision uh, vision uh, 2030 was the right thing to do at the right time, or maybe a little late, but it was the right, it's the right thing to do. But they execute it right. It's another story. I, I hope that helps. Thanks, Paul. And Bakri, let's connect again soon. Uh, Bill. Sure. Yeah. Hey, Stephen. As always, terrific. And uh, I, I think I think your slide on productivity is is like really important as well. Uh, you know, given that demographics and particularly like you know working age population, which is a big factor in GDP growth, is pretty much fixed. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about the productivity, you know, side of things? Because I I think that is absolutely the the key because growing growing out of of, of the debt situation is is the only positive means of, of doing things. Everything else is pretty draconian. Yeah, it's it's funny. We're gonna have to eat a bitter pill um, at some point. You just can't keep kicking the can down the road. But you know, at some point, we're gonna have to really face up to the facts that you know the bills come and do. Um, so I think the answer for for a lot of it is productivity and. Um, the only way you can deal with the demographic problems that we have, the skills problem that we have uh, in the labor force and the wage bills rising is to become more productive. And it doesn't necessarily have to be as draconian as wiping out, you know, all these jobs. It could be just in enhancing the jobs. Um, we're having still having trouble finding people for so many areas that um, that's where the money has to go. And we have to keep spending on improving productivity to deal with demographics and deal with debt. I do think, and I just saw um, uh, some conversation in the in the chat about uh, universal basic income, and I do think that there'll be a role for that in the system going forward, as crazy as it sounds and as uh, you know, uncapitalistic as it sounds, I think that's coming. Um, but I just think we're going to see some of the most amazing things over the next decade, um, things we can't just contemplate, you really can't contemplate. We had an investment call and, you know, they're working on, you know, uh, uh, T-cell stuff in cancer that could eliminate the need for uh, chemo and radiation. And you can, you know, kill them without chemo and radiation. The change of the outcomes for that, it could be massive. Um, you can just go through healthcare, go through different industries the ability to make make us a more productive society, live longer, live healthier, um, work longer, is all going to be important. So I, I think you can't underestimate what's going on in the tech world and what that means. Um, but then you have the other side of it, like Musk and Tesla today. That's fascinating, where he's talking about not really putting AI into Tesla unless he has 25% of the company or something, or 25% voting power. And that's the world we're going to. It's, it just speaks to how powerful productivity can be and tech can be, um, and also how scary. So I think we're going to deal with both. Um, there's positives and negatives coming from it, but I think the government's going to have to get much smarter about what they're doing to help drive this forward. But there isn't a company around that's not going to be more productive next year if they still want to be in business. And what they're going to do to do that is going to be really aggressive spend in tech if they can afford it. And I think this gets to bill your debt issue. Companies that are highly indebted are gonna have a hard time funding 
the investments in technology if there's so much of their money is going toward debt servicing. So you're starting to get a sense of the haves and have nots again coming through as to who can be who can make the change. And I think you're going to see even greater delineation. So I would say when you're looking at value companies, make sure it's not a value company that's being left behind. So Michael, then Rob. So Stephen, I posted the comment about universal basic income. And I've always come at it from uh, Milton Friedman's negative income tax perspective. My concern is that, and I had posted earlier a link to a Bloomberg article about the impact of AI on jobs. I think it's useful at the margins, but if a large percentage of the population uh, ends up on UBI, I, I think there's a huge risk of a two-tiered economic system with limited mobility, upward mobility for, from that lower tier. And that, that's really concerning to me. Thoughts? Uh, socialism versus capitalism? I don't view it as socialism, though. It, it, it's, it's the extremes, though. It's, it really is. Can, can we thread the needle on that? I, I think inequality will grow dramatically if we don't figure out a way to deal with this more productively. And I think you're seeing it all over the world. The, um, the haves and have-nots is going to grow on a country, company, and individual level. Um, and that is scary. It is one of the scary outcomes that we're going to have to face up to. And I don't think just taxing it is the way to deal with it. So I think we're going to have to get um, get much smarter about how we're how we're addressing the inequality problem than we have been to date. I'd love to see a 361 discussion about UBI. Well, you know how to start it. Come tomorrow. <laughs> Come tomorrow at 1030 and we'll 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 talk about it. You got to find the experts on it. It's a tough one to find experts on. Is inequality higher or lower today than it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago? Well, the way it's calculated, the answer is yes to all your questions, higher or lower. It just depends on how it's calculated. But I do, it, the uh, the numbers would indicate that it's, it is probably still extreme. Whether it's worsening or not, I don't know, but probably it's extreme at these levels. It's certainly more visible. Yeah. Hey, so Steve. If I can try to... Adam, 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 you got to put your hand up. Rob, call yeah. me a, your favorite. Sorry. Thank you. Thank, thanks. Good protocol, Mark. Hey, hey Steve, um, just with respect to the, um, the Musk request or the demand with respect to the equity... Um, how much does the market uh, either value that? And I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on how some of these growth tech companies, do they view Musk? Is, is that a, uh, is that somebody that's a barometer for, uh, for equity ownership or do they view that as a bit of an outlier and then you settle for somewhere in between? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how the world views Musk, uh, I think they have them all over the place. I think some people view him as a genius, and other people view him as evil. Um, who knows? I, I don't. I don't. I don't have a have a uh, a point of view on that. I think he's. I definitely think he's brilliant. Uh, um, I think it's interesting the way he's um, 
he's bringing that up now because he's going to turn off a lot of investors from investing with him going forward uh, because a lot of the Tesla buyers bought because of what he was going to be doing with technology. So um, that's a tougher one to, I would have thought he would have charged for it differently inside the cars or come up with a different way to charge for AI and what levels you get rather than say he's only going to do it if he has a big, bigger stake. Um, but I, I, it's hard to say. I think he's. I, I think it's fascinating, though. It just speaks to what the power of AI is, uh, and what it's going to do, and how we're all uh, kind of beholden to it, um, and what it means for us going forward. It's going to change everything we do. So I think it's got big implications there. I'm not sure whether. I, I think it was probably a bad decision by him. Uh, even if that's what he thought, I would not. I don't think it's the policy you go out with. <laughs> so. Uh, but it is interesting that that's the value that he's putting towards it. And uh, you add to that what it means for the data guys. AI is a boom for the data center players. Um, as is some of the stuff coming out of uh, CES last week, like, uh, you know, uh, some of the uh, uh, avatars and all that that's going to be coming that we're going to be able to create. The amount of data we're going to be take the data and create new things with it is going to create more data and it's just going to be a bigger strain on the system. Um, so I think it bodes well for the big uh, cloud providers and other data players. But, and by the way, on uh, Austin Fowler, just before you speak out of, sorry, we're, I um, coming out of our deep dive a couple weeks ago, I do want to have you and some of the others be part of the, of an emerging industries discussion in Miami that you're going to be there anyways. Um, but any, it's a boon definitely for the data centers. And you, as a Googler, you want to, you want to just add on to what, what Stephen mentioned? Sure. It certainly will be a productivity driver. It already is. But even in, you know, I consider 2023 the first year where you could use AI to do productive things, program. Even in that very first year of its existence, it's increased our productivity as programmers and researchers. The ability to ask it genuine, complex scientific questions, something you could never do in a search engine and get not just a one-line answer, which is not very helpful, but 10 paragraphs, dot point, dot point, dot point, is really quite incredible. So, you know, that's just the beginning. So productivity will be excellent. Uh, I'm not particularly concerned, tying it back to some of the early conversations, this is going to lead to the need for universal basic income. That's my opinion. I know there are a diverse range of opinions on that. In my opinion, society has faced enormous automation events in the past, from the steam engine to the cotton gin, and these same things from the, the weaving loom, right, back into antiquity. These challenges have faced society over and over again, and we just seem to muddle through it. We invent new professions. People like to be busy. They work out how to stay employed, right? I, I suspect the same will happen again. Some industries will go, you know, if you're a graphic artist, you're probably in trouble uh, and others will rise. And what those will be, we will see. But, you know, the U.S. is at very low unemployment rates now. I don't personally see that suddenly rising just because of AI. Just productivity will get better in some industries where it helps. Mm -hmm. Adam, Mark, you're on mute. You owe yourself a beer. Sorry. No, I got fast. You, you only said mute once. I was just pointing out, Adam, 
Austin's going to be uh, on the 330 Miami. And he'll also, you're joining us in Naples. So this conversation can start uh, even earlier. Uh, as, we, as he's Google, we have XIBM, AI perspectives. And then that it's also a boon for energy. Or it's a need for energy. But Adam, I, I, uh, I'm over to you. Thank you, Mark. Um, bad day for me. Rob beat me to the first question. Anyway, um, two. You, know, you, you, I've got you a still won. And a question. You won. You won, Adam, because you 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 posed posed a question before the briefing started. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. My uh, I have a comment. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I have a comment and a question regarding the haves and haves not have nots. There's a great book called The Great Leveler. I don't remember the author, but it does talk about the wealth inequality. It's a bit wonky. Back, and it goes back to Roman times to today. Very interesting book. And the conclusion is there are three ways to resolve the problem. World war, pandemic, global pandemic, and civil war. That was the conclusion of the book. Um, moving on, if, if anyone's interested in reading that book, again, it's called The Great Leveler. My question is to Mark, to Michael, who is sitting there with Mark. Um, my question is about German, Russian energy that had been going to Germany over the past two decades how is Germany coping with that? How is Germany replacing that that inexpensive energy? I know that it, it's really important. The gas in particular is part of the input for fertilizer manufacturing. And you're having problems with that in Germany, as I understand it. But the core of my question, how is Germany coping with that? What is replacing that cheap gas and energy? See, the, the, the main uh, answer on that is uh, we, we are working uh, now on 50%, higher than 50%, is, I believe it's 51 point something uh, percent of green energy. Yeah, so we have uh, a, dram a dramatic shift uh, from uh, the old, uh, old oil and gas uh, type of energy energy. Uh, um, uh, um, consummation to uh, the new ones uh, and uh, it's a heavily in, uh, investment in Germany but nevertheless we need gas especially for uh, 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 getting the German industry uh, in the right kind of st uh, stage of competition as uh, energy is uh, much too expensive here in Germany and we are using at the moment a lot of LNG uh, which is coming from the Middle East uh, uh, by tankers, uh, this, uh, the war now uh, started by the Houthi uh, rebel, uh, rebels. It's not uh, a good issue for us because uh, this it's uh, it's uh, bringing the energy problems back to to to, to Europe. Um, there are some further opportunities to take uh, the uh, LNG from uh, Saudi. Uh, they have also uh, closed a lot of contracts. But uh, this is definitely something which is under discussion. Uh, nevertheless, we manage everything well uh, at the moment uh, by using the energy, uh, or make the energy transition happen. And uh, the, the prices we are paying at the moment are a little bit higher. 
but uh, when uh, the the system will be get really stable, uh, we will uh, we can drop down a lot of things um, uh, on uh, based on the green energy. Uh, the the wind turbines uh, are uh, booming here in uh, Germany. You will see this everywhere around, uh, and uh, this helps a lot. But it's not uh, not the final solution. We have to work on that, and it it will take another four years uh, before um, roughly eighty percent will be done completely out of uh, alternative, alternative uh, resources. Thank you, Michael. Okay. Other any other questions, comments before we we break? I want to build Deutschler Pizan going back to the crypto question. Um, Bill, do you have a sense of what institutions are using for the weightings in their asset allocations for crypto? Very, very good question. Uh, as as far as weightings, you know, it 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 can run a gamut, but I would say in general, it's maybe a you know a couple of percent um, in terms in terms of BTC. Now, on uh, for those who have made an allocation onto the venture side, it could be a little bit larger. Uh, but I think as if if anyone's you know holding outright you know BTC or Ethereum, something like that, I would say it's in the one to two percent range. But there are definitely going to be a few outliers out there that could be a little bit more. Yeah. Mark, it would be it might be interesting to see if we can get an institutional consultant from one of the big firms to Give their perspective on it, Bill. If you you know, it's just thinking of uh, somebody from Cambridge or even Morgan Creek or somebody uh, who's a player in this area that's big. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, shift changes in institutional portfolios, and then what does that mean for we, families and individuals? We had an, yeah, uh, it, we oh, had that. I, sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Mark. I, I was just going to say probably most of the large consultants are. Not going to talk a whole lot about it. Um, you know, Cambridge was sort of the leader, but the guy who was leading the charge at Cambridge uh, left about two years ago, uh, which is which is very unfortunate. Um, however, you know, I the way that the way that we used to think about it, you know, back at Morgan Creek, and I think also, you know, when I was at the family offices, is that need, needless to say, it is hugely volatile. So sizing is so important for that. And you just have to look at, at what's your tolerance for volatility and contribution to volatility in, in your portfolio, and then, you know, size accordingly. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, if, if you look at, at the chart, it's a, it's a huge swing, but it's also up and to the right as well. And, um, well, I'm not going to have enough time in my, in Miami to talk about it, but I did pull out. Uh, the Bitcoin price trace, and once again, best performing asset. Like it's crazy. We'll we'll have that discussion. We, we did have that. I was going to say Marco Veramis was the guy from uh, from uh, Cambridge who was on our uh, one of our deep dives. It was called yes. Institu institutional perspectives on uh, I don't know if we were calling crypto or 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 digital assets, but uh, yeah, he moved on to uh, Evans. Uh, Evanston. Evanston. Evanston, and I believe that he's actually moved on from there. But yeah, he was with Evanston guys for a while. And we had uh, Lockheed's uh, in in-house pension investor. So we should see how they see the world three years later. Um, plus, 
Remember your friend uh, from uh, from Morgan Creek who came on? We had, this is a great episode, everybody. This we had the CIO from UBS, and she spoke about how the markets and and then he said, "I hate to be the skunk in the garden the party. party," and disagreed with her. And then you know he was bullish on crypto and China, and we saw where that went for the next two years. But these things do go in cycles, and I would actually argue for a fund of fund approach. But um, Anna, Michael, Angela. Hey, I'll just add comment. I saw Austin's. Definitely, I agree. This could be another conversation. Angela, sorry. Anna's on on next. Sorry. Uh, it's hold okay. Your, Thank you. Hold I your was, fire. I was uh, trying to find the unmute button. So, question for Stephen. First of all, thank you so much. Always very informative, motivating, inspiring. Love the positive out of problems and uh, finding opportunities, trans transitioning or transforming, reframing problems to opportunities. So my question for you, do you have any recommendation for trends, growth potential in the mental health space and as a subset, self-help areas, uh, our consumer market? Maybe corporate we're, we're we're very focused on the the mental health issue because we're um, rolling out a, a new service that works with families with special needs members. So it's an important area to us. Um, and uh, we also are uh, personally helping people with disabilities. Uh, so it's an important area for us. I think from an investment perspective, I think the uh, I think mental health is a major issue for businesses and, and for the economy. It's become uh, a bigger and bigger issue that has to be factored into how businesses operate because our people are dealing with more problems than they've had before. Uh, but no, it's not an error. We we don't spend a lot of time from the macro perspective on that. Um, what we do focus on is, you know, 16% of our GDP goes to healthcare costs. And when you think about it, we're a, $27 trillion economy, that's massive spend every year, that if we can improve outcomes and lower the costs, we will, it'll save the country a lot of money that can be put to solve a lot of the other problems we have. So it's an area that we're very focused on uh, in, in what, we, what we're doing there. And I think AI and other technologies, I think healthcare is going to be one of the huge beneficiaries of the benefits of AI because it'll let us get uh, products out into the market much faster than they ever have. Mm -hmm. Michael, thank you. Uh, yeah, so William brought up one of my favorite words, volatility. And Stephen, again, and I've brought this up in previous weeks, the VIX is amazingly low even now, given everything that's out there, all the risks and potential problems. So when are we going to see the VIX start getting more active? Uh, you'll see the VIX be more active when the big seven companies start acting different than the market does. Um, what you're what you're really seeing is a, a inside the market, individual company moves are very different than the VIX is representing, and I think the overall market's masking the underlying problems. And you see it every time a company announces earnings in the fourth quarter of last year. You could have a company just beat or just miss and be up or down 20%. Um, that was very common in the fourth quarter. It'll be interesting in this earnings season to see if the moves are ex as exaggerated as they were. 
Um, but I think you have to look underneath the VIX. Um, I think the overall market's masking it. Um, the underlying volatility of individual companies is much higher. And uh, having owned some of them that have gone both ways last year, I can assure you that it's much higher and how it feels is uh, when it's going against you is not very fun. Um, but I think it's, I think you have to look at companies and not the market in that case for the VIX. Austin? So just returning briefly to, you know, is AI going to destroy the world? Uh, it is a complex discussion, but if we can simplify it for brevity and look at war, right? There are a lot of applications for AI. You can imagine a platform that just has a gun on it and all it does is target enemies, right? It's illegal. People don't allow it. We don't allow biological. We don't allow chemical weapons. We try to avoid nuclear. This may seem like a, a disconnected comment, but when things would be really bad, if you allowed every transport job to be replaced by AI, every healthcare worker to be replaced with a robot, pretty clear it would, it would be a bad social outcome and people would realize this. And there's a lot of pushback. Uh, you know, I live in LA. Recently around Universal Studios, there were a whole bunch of demonstrations of riders basically saying no AI in our industry because it's going to kill our industry. And the same, I believe, will occur wherever the social impact will become too negative. People will say the social impact will be too negative. You are not allowed to replace a McDonald's worker with an AI robot. We will not go to your stores. We'll protest. We'll break your windows. So, you know, people will pull back, in my opinion. And that will be the balancing factor that ensures that society stays functional. People want it to stay functional. They'll enact laws to make it so. Again, complex question. We'd love to discuss it more. And we will in Florida. There was an interesting interview today on CNBC with the CEO of Accenture, and she was talking about how they're using it internally and how they're driving it through. It's worth uh, going and seeing it in the uh, CEO interviews. You can go check the video out. But one of the things she was saying was how she's using it personally and also how they're using it in the company. And one of the areas they were focused on is she can get her financial information much quicker through that. But she did say, but she still has to watch out for all the errors that are coming through on that too. So we still have a ways to go, I think. And I think Austin, that's part of what your point is, is AI is coming. It's here, but it's still coming too. And until you get it really functioning in a way that is uh, highly efficient, um, you don't have the same worries that you do maybe a couple of years out when we're in a better spot. Um.